When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. spoken to one legendary British producer on the show in the shape of Stephen Woolley. It was such good fun, we thought we'd have another go, this time with the super charming and talented David Heyman. Like Stephen, David's CV is enviable, as well as producing all of the Harry Potter films and spin-off Fantastic Beasts. He's also the man behind The Light Between Oceans, Testament of Youth and Gravity, among many, many other celebrated movies. And as we'll discover, music very much falls under his remit. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, the podcast in which we speak to key figures from the worlds of film and television about the sounds of the screen. The list of composers David has worked with is mighty impressive, from John Williams and James Newton Howard to Stephen Price, Max Richter and Dario Maianelli who scored his latest project, the delightful Paddington 2. Indeed, it's one of Dario's cues from Paddington that you can hear playing now. He also loves hip-hop, which informed his first movie as a producer, Juice, the 1992 thriller starring late rapper Tupac Shakur. And given that we kick off by playing tracks and a clip from the film, I should warn you that there's inevitably a fair bit of choice language in this episode. Before we talk about Paddington and Gravity and Testament of Youth and Light Between the Oceans and all sorts, which we've had a lot of your directors on the show as well, I'm going to go way back. Because you're a big hip-hop fan, I, I heard. I am a big hip-hop I, I was <laughs> Still? and am. Good. I was a method producer. I used to go around. The first one I produced was Juice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you see me now in my jacket. and uh, It's a costume, I, it's, it's fine. A, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's a thin veneer. Beneath it lies a uh, hip-hop fan at heart. Um, no, I used to go around Carhartt jacket, Timberland boots, uh, hoodie. <laughs> I was really, really But no, I was always... I, I loved hip-hop. Uh, and on Juice, uh, had the great pleasure of working with a man called Hank Shockley, who was one of the members of the Bomb Squad, which was Public Enemy's producers, mm. part of Public Enemy. I loved um, Public Enemy. They were the soundtrack of my late 20s, early 30s. So the opportunity to work with them was just thrilling. Well, I'm the pro-black radical man Been at the hour of 12 So far, scuffed the 
And on Juice, what we were looking for was the sound of the streets, mm-hmm. um, and they were perfect for that. The story involved a young DJ, so we had to create a DJ competition because that was one of the central pieces of action. The character, mm. uh, played by a man called Omar Epps, was uh, a DJ, and so we had all these incredible DJs. I was like a groupie. Um, but I was an inexperienced producer. And when it came time to finishing the film, we realized we didn't have the license to any of the records that we'd used. That's a mistake I made once and will never make again. Um, we didn't have a license to any of the, of the music. So wow. what we ended up doing, a guy called Plastic Man helped yeah. come up with this idea that we would use the songs that we had made for the film mm-hmm. by people like Naughty by Nature, Too Short, uh, Cypress Hill, Easy. I mean, it's an incredible soundtrack. Yeah. Um, use those as the records. And what we did is we, we scratched and mixed the movement and the sound to those songs. So we had to completely wow. remake the sound of the DJ competition. <laughs> it was an amazing thing. <laughs> starred a young actor mm-hmm. it was his first film and he hadn't released an album yet called Tupac and I remember him coming in for the audition he came in with um, a guy called Shock G who was the lead of a band called Digital Underground yeah. which I loved and Tupac sang on rapped on a couple of the songs and uh, Shock G came in he wasn't very good great musician great rapper not a great actor and his sidekick came in and performed the role and walked out and we were like and then the door opened and he stuck his head back in and he said, you all better give me the part because I know we all live. <sighs> and he shut the door and he walked out. <laughs> Crazy, man. You know what? When you said that last time, I was kind of tripping, right? But now, you right. I am crazy. But you know what else? give a fuck I don't give a fuck about you I don't give a fuck about Steel and I don't give a fuck about Raheem either I don't give a fuck about myself look I ain't shit I ain't never gonna be shit and you less of a man than me so as soon as I decide that you ain't gonna be shit so be it you remember that motherfucker cause I'm the one y'all need to be worried about What got him the part, that or the actual well, audition? Well, actually or both? that. And then what we did is we had around 12 kids who could have played. There are four central characters. Mm. And we tried different combinations and we went out for dinner with a bunch of them and we just saw how it all melted together and mm. Tupac got the part. Hey. You knew he was special, so charismatic, and all the other actors looked to him. 
he was the leader. Yeah. You know, he was he was very special. Of course, again, another big mistake in my career is he was always writing, and he wanted to have a song on the on the album on the movie, and I discussed it with Hank, and he said nah. So he said nah, and uh, <laughs> another regret. <laughs> That's what life's about, though, David. Yeah. It's about learning yeah, as you learning. go and experience no, it's so things. True. It so is, and as a producer, there's no school for it. I'm still learning every day on every film from the people I work with. As a producer, you know, it's it's quite a solitary position in some ways. You know, you don't have occasionally you have a producing partner, but often you're on your own. So who do you learn from? You learn by looking at the work of others, and you learn from the people who you work with. involved do you get in the music side of things with your films is each production different I get quite involved I mean I, I juice the soundtrack was my baby I was obsessed with the music knew more probably than almost certainly than any of the other producers probably the director and was yeah a fan and I approached it as a fan tried to get some of the bands that I was listening to and that I loved to be in it yeah and of course beginning with Hank was a great beginning with the others, it's both making suggestions of, of, of composers, but following the vision of the director. Yeah. On the Paddingtons, for example, working very closely with Paul, debating, discussing the emotion of any particular scene or the feeling that one wanted to get across. And working closely with him. I mean, he again, always had, it's his vision, his final say, but being a counterpoint to him and to sometimes be able to, you know, say things in a different way than yeah. he can mm -hmm. to interpret something uh, to help uh, counterpoint yeah. uh, offer a different point of view that he can digest and then mm. either embrace or cast aside because I have many bad ideas <laughs> the fact that you admit that is a good thing because most people wouldn't um, oh my goodness you know, thank goodness I work with smart directors who uh, are good editors of my ideas and know the few that may be worth taking and discard and ignore the many that should be avoided the way that Paddington approaches music in that you have this wonderful score by uh, Dario Marinella but then also within the narrative you have well, they're not even really in the narrative but you have the band that kind of pop up whether they're they're on one of those in window cleaning hoists or they're on Portobello Road in some way so they're in, in some way they're like a Greek chorus <laughs> yeah. and uh, we use them as such Michael Bond's books 
well, the first book was written in 1958, and the context of the story, Notting Hill, and in a way, thematically, it was about the wave of West Indian immigrants that were coming here um, at that time, post-colonial, making their home in this country. Mm -hmm. And Paul had the idea of Calypso, that sound being, in some ways, a heartbeat of the film. And so we went in search of Calypso musicians. And Honest John is a record shop on Portobello Road, mm -hmm. and it's owned by Damon Alburn, who's a true musicologist, passionate about music of all yeah, kinds. Yeah, completely and world music. Yeah, world music. Mm -hmm. The work he's done in Mali and beyond. I mean, yeah. he's just, I'm a huge fan. So we approached Damon and asked him if he would help Great. put it together. And so he and his team put together the different musicians. musicians. Here's a little song to help you get along. Gets you out the door to do a tiny chore. Take some soap and water, mix them up together, splash it on the window pane. Scrub it left to right till it's shiny bright. Rub with all your might. Left and right, make it bright. Rub and scrub with your tub. Now you out the door, you'll do a little more. Give it a good wash with your mighty brush. Take some soap and water, mix them up. Splash it on the window pane. Scrub it left to right till it's shining bright. Rub with all your might, left and right. Make it bright. Rub and scrub with your tongue. Left and right. Make it bright. Rub and scrub. Are the musicians that we hear the musicians we see? Yes, there may be the odd musician who comes in because one's not available. Yeah. They weren't originally a band, I don't think. I think they were just musicians taken from different yeah. places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The best. Please tell me they've now formed a band. Well, they, uh, <laughs> they will be playing at the premiere. Yes. <laughs> if this little proverb you would understand, you will lend your brothers a helping hand. If this little proverb you will understand, you will lend your brothers a helping hand. Whether you are white, pink, blue or black Six feet of earth is yours and that's a fact So whether you agree or you should disagree You cannot disregard the truth of this philosophy Singing life would be easier, time would be breezier If you love your neighbor We all know there is ideal happiness above which arises from the presence of brotherly love. So if the joys of a heaven you wish to party, this is an example you should try to emulate. Resist all temptation, restrain from strife. I try to live a noble and an upright life. And this too you must learn, make the best of what you earn. Strictly learn to leave your brother's property alone. And life would be easier, time would be breezier if you love your neighbor. Can we talk about Dario? Because he's such an incredible, diverse composer as well when you think of Viva Vendetta and things like that that he's done. But what the subtlety that he's brought to this as well is just perfect. 
The V for Vendetta score wasn't the inspiration for Patton, <laughs> just to be clear. Really? <laughs> um, you know, what he brings, besides a great knowledge of music and a variety of music, is his ability to, well, a couple of things, create a unity about the score. You know, it's not just a, a series of elements, it's a, it's a series of elements that hold together mm -hmm. and create a whole. So that was one. Two, he did the score for... Kubo and the Two Strings? Yeah, for Kubo. Yeah. And that was really beautiful mm. and uh, had a wonderful classical but warm beating heart. a unified score but also one because I think this film is one that's more emotional yeah um, than we have in the past it's Hugh Grant's just coming oh. making noise <laughs> fine come and use the toilet it's absolutely fine just keep the noise down yes. please you know this uh, Hugh this is about music so keep the tinkle quiet <laughs> as you um, were saying we minor. can't hear him <laughs> um uh, so it um, unifying that the, the score. unifying, but also an emotion, um, because we wanted to make this a very emotional story. And his ability to create sentiment, but not be sentimental, yeah, it was was really central. As well as having humour and a sense of adventure, he's done. I mean, you mentioned V for Vendetta. He can do action. He can do comedy. He can do quiet, melancholic, mournful sounds. And his ability to work with different instruments. Paul likes, yes, the conventional instrument, but he also likes the unconventional, yeah. surprising instrumentation. composers that you've worked with over your films, it's pretty impressive. Desplat, who I'm a big fan of. Yeah. I just refer to him as Desplat, because yeah. I'm Scottish and I can't say French words properly. Um, Alexandre. <laughs> Alexandre Desplat, who I love. And yeah. um, what's interesting as well, when you look at the Potter series and having different directors working across those films and John Williams starting it off, was it an easy sell to John to come on board for that first Potter yes, film? Um, yes, it was. Joe's books were a magnet. And Chris Columbus had a very good relationship with John. And I remember him delivering us the theme, Hedwig's theme, just as we'd started shooting, because we were looking for um, a score for a teaser. And he delivered that. And we got you know, Chris, myself, listening to it for the first time, had goosebumps. I'm not surprised. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
just as an aside quite a few people tried to write songs for Potter which we never wanted because it didn't feel right one of those was Bruce Springsteen who was obsessed with Harry Potter and Chris Columbus was and is one of the biggest Bruce Springsteen fans ever and having to say no to Bruce Springsteen I think Chris wrote a 15 page letter to say no and um, I mean just the experiences you have on films the ability to work you know saying no to heroes but having the ability to work with people who become heroes just the experience of working with them yeah um, the ability to work with heroes and to discover to work with people who aren't yet who become but also just just the process of making films the experience is just so rewarding I really want to hear the Bruce Springsteen yes, no, I, think, I think Bruce his wife Chris and I are one of the, the only four people, the, the people in the paradise. actually the person yeah that's it Back yeah, of course. To talk yeah. about with John. Yeah. John. I mean, where do you start? Where, where do you, exactly. And then Alfonso comes in on the third film. Yeah. And if you listen to the first two scores and then you listen to the third, it's related to the palette and the sound, but it's completely different. And that's because of Alfonso, who knows more about music than any director I've ever worked with and who is obsessed with detail and you know, had the courage to push John in an extraordinary way. things that I hadn't heard him try yeah you know? and you know you look at that breadth of work my goodness and I, st- I have my signed copy of one of his music sheets you know it's got private <sighs> place at home I mean, John <laughs> um, but you've got to work with him on a film that that theme is now up there yeah. it's up there because it is so iconic now on a film that you've one yeah. of many of those films that no, you've produced so yeah an amazing thing yeah but then to see someone who is that 
experienced, that brilliant, who we've has been lauded again. I don't know how many Academy Awards he's won, but tons. But it's been lauded. Who is the great composer? Has the humility to work with Alfonso Cuaron, whose last film was a brilliant film, but was a film that was very, very small. Mm-hmm. Brilliant director. But sensed that, knew that, and took guidance. And, and was able and listened and was able to explore different themes and ideas and different ways of expressing mm. a story or a, using a score to express the story or the emotion or the feeling that was incredible to mm. see. And the pleasure that he got out of it. He worked without ego and he worked with great passion. And I, that remains, I mean, I love all the scores, but that third has a very special place just partly because it's John Williams doing everything that John Williams does brilliantly, but also doing things that we haven't heard John Williams do before. seen that for the first time and just the power and the impact that that film had you know alfonso has a real ability of finding talent so on the third potter he shook things up he had such respect for chris but he wanted to make it his own but at the same time he understood that he was building on something that was already there but he brought in his own costume designer it was a woman called jani tamim someone who he had never worked with but he'd seen her work liked it uh, she actually did the costumes on a film my mum produced called Gangster Number no. One. And he really liked those, met her, but she'd only made small films and he just felt something. He felt yeah. that she could do it and he gave her the opportunity. On Gravity, Steve Price, who had worked as a music programmer and as a composer on Joe Cornish's film Attack the Block, yeah. but not you know, on anything of the scale or in the vernacular of a Gravity. Alfonso wanted this, you know, in space there's no sound. So for him, it was essential that the score be more than just a score, not just, that's not fair, but be more than a score. It is the sound landscape of the film. musically mm. but sonically yeah and so the two of them approach that in a in, in, and steve's patience and uh, tenacity to 
try things again and again and a note, a sound. Alfonso's, the film was very much pre-visualized, so a lot was defined, but he would find new, very early on, but he was find new things all the time, and a bit of animation would affect how he would think the sound should be, and how the music be. So Steve did, I reckon, thousands of versions of, of, of certain pieces of music, and he was always open, because again, you know, the director is a very special man, a special talent, um, to try and explore and to push the envelope. It was, uh, I think, of quite a brave score, and um, it, worked. Um, it worked. did and it was so important it was such an important piece to the whole puzzle of that film well, music is the key to every film always a key to every mm -hmm. film it ideally it doesn't draw too much attention to itself in the sense it's not about the score it's about the film um, it services the story the character and the director's intent but if you have it servicing it wrongly <laughs> <laughs> or if it, it, it works in opposition, it can destroy a film. I don't know if you've seen that there's a, a trailer on YouTube for The Shining, the comedy. And it's cut in such a way, of course, to make it seem more comedic. Yeah. About a family together and the good times they have. But the music just makes it seem so happy. And so music can take something that in one way would be if it was it, a film, make it from dark, take a scene or a moment from dark to light, mm -hmm. and a bad score can ruin a film. Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas, no good ones. Meet Danny. Please, He's a kid looking for a dad. There's hardly anybody to play with around here. Nah. What's up, Doc? Jack just can't finish his book. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but there's no way to make it economically feasible. Here's to five miserable months. But now, sometimes what we need the most is just around the corner. I'm your new foster father. I'd do anything. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill. I love it. I could see the city light. My heart going boom, boom, boom. Son, he said, grab your things, I'm going to take you home. Shiny. I'll tell you who's 
Cole, who told us a great story, was Nancy Myers, who told us about something's got to give, and she was she had to she had to redo the score in, in a week because it just wasn't right the score that she had. And Super Hands came in and saved the day, as we refer to him now, Super Hands. Super Hands and his team. He has an yeah. incredible team. And, you know, he's interesting. You know, I love Hanson, and I think he has done a, a, what a variety of scores mm -hmm. from 12 Years a Slave to Batman. Yeah. Um, you look at the difference in, 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 in those, for example. Yeah. And then, of course, you go back a long way to <laughs> yeah. other iconic scores. Driving Miss Daisy. Brilliant. about a team because it really is a team yeah, of people totally. working but you look at the people who've come out of the school of Hans as it were mm -hmm. uh, or from his studio yeah and it's some of the finest composers working too I mean James Newton Howard we were talking about yeah. you know, Gregson Williams yeah you know, I mean, and on and on and on mm -hmm. I mean it's amazing it's wonderful I've never worked with him if you never no I'd love to Richter on Testament of Youth. Yeah, I love Max Richter's. Oh. Um, I actually just went to, well, no, I went to this year. No, last year I went to see um, on the Potter films, on the fourth Potter, we used a choreographer by the name of Wayne McGregor. Um, there's a scene where some different schools come into Hogwarts, Hogwarts. and they're the Beaubaton with these French girls, and they come in with a certain move, and then there's Durmstrang, and they have their own moves. And we got a choreographer to come in and help, and that was Wayne. Wayne is one of the most exciting choreographers working today, and he did a piece called Wolf Works, which was at the, uh, I think it was the Royal Opera House, with a score by Max Richter, which was sublime. Mm-hmm. 
Mirroring Max was not my idea. It was Rosie Allison who works with me and, and James Kent. And it's such a beautiful score. And mm. he understands melancholy and yearning and loss like few others. And also a restraint. There is a, a sparseness to his scores. They're not cluttered. Mm-hmm. They're not bombastic. They're unpredictable they're be- as well, I yeah, think, as well. they are which is really, really great. You know, and talking about that idea of not wanting to tell the audience how to feel or how it, to think. Or it, it's really true, and I, I, I love what you just said, which is about unpredictable, because in a way, there is an obvious way to approach a score mm-hmm. to any film. And what you said about Paddington, you know, having that, it now seems obvious, but it may not have seemed obvious at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, ultimately, the best scores are those that you can't really imagine until you've seen the film, and then you can't imagine it mm-hmm. without, without it. it. I watched Fantastic Beasts again recently. I'm very excited for the next one. Me too. <laughs> uh, we are very excited. So that film... Is James Newton-Howard doing the script yes. again? The, sorry, yes. the score well, again? Yeah. yeah, James Newton-Howard will be back. And he did, he uh, he was a real pleasure. I think he it was quite... You know, David Yates is... is, is um, well, David's an interesting one because I spoke to him about Tarzan, and similarly, he had to change composer, mm. which he was very open about, and you know, and, and very grateful for the work that the original composer had put in. But it just, you know, when it's not right, it's not right. Yeah. Um, it's a bold call to make that. Yeah, definitely. So James Newton Howard, we there was so many of his scores that we'd liked, and he also had a sense of the scale because you need for, for Fantastic Beast, we needed a, a scale also. Um, New York 1920s James understood that language and that really was the beginning of that was the inspiration or that was the jumping off point um, and Jacob's theme and you know which had that lovely sort of jazz early days of jazz tone and sound
then we built out from that. He is one of those composers who provides incredibly detailed samples. So when you add, and we kept him on for a very long time. Normally, a composer comes on quite late and they start working for a gosh, you know, varying amounts of time, but 12 weeks or so. With James, we brought him on at the beginning. We had him come to set. We had him watch filmmaking. We had him sit down with David. We spent some time. We took him all the sets. We had him look at all the concepts, mm. the designs, and we kept on sending them to him as we went so that he felt a part of the team, making him a part of the family. But he sent these incredibly detailed samples. So as we were doing our early cuts, often you do a, a temp score and you're using sometimes score from your composer. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can't get the sound from your composer for a particular scene that feels right, so you get other people. And it's a real hodgepodge. The problem with that is, one, there's no unity. Mm -hmm. Two, you sometimes directors fall in love with the temp score, and that really can limit yeah. or handicap the composer. Well, on Fantastic Beasts, James started sending us temps that kept on changing okay. and kept on developing, but very early on, even while we were filming. Mm. And then as we started screening the film and screening scenes, we had the score or an interpretation of it that may have gone 180 degrees, but we could see it, mm. hear it, and respond accordingly and build the score and the film organically. that you've worked on and, and also when you look at the list of upcoming projects it's slightly dizzying it's incredible you, you're, you're, you're so busy and there's so many but what's wonderful is the diversity of, of productions that, that you work on and I assume that that's because you're a film fan and you as a film fan you like different types of film and you want to make and create different types of films as well it's not about not wanting to be pigeonholed but it's about finding stories that interest me and that's yeah. not I, I love genre but it's not about a single genre it's about finding connection with the characters, relatability with the characters. That's really at its heart. And then it's about the filmmakers, the mm. writers, the directors, the actors, and the uh, whole host of people behind the camera who rarely get the kudos that they deserve. But in terms of what gets me to say yes to a project or what gets me to pursue a project, it's finding that point of connection. And I'm a curious person. Curious in the sense probably a little weird, but curious in the sense I'm interested. I'm interested, you know, I love to travel, I love to read, I love art, I love, to, you know, I'm interested in certain politics, I'm interested in so much. It's so too with different stories. Yeah. Mm. I think that's the inspiration for the stories that I want to be a part of. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. Are we going to have more Paddington? Because it warrants more at the oh, end of this film. I don't so want to give sick. anything away, but I'm like, I want more. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, when we finished the first, we had no idea. It was pretty complete. Paddington 
found a home and found a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he belonged. So when we started the second, we had to begin afresh. And what we decided to do was have the home taken away from him. Mm-hmm. I'm not spoiling it, but there will be a happy ending. Um, we'll make you cry, uh, but it's but, happy but, uh, I hope that um, I hope that we have the opportunity to make another one. Let's see how audiences respond. Um, um, hopefully they'll like it and have as much fun watching it as we have making it. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, and I look forward to Fantastic Beasts as well. David, thank you for your time. Thank you. That's Shoot 'em Up by Cypress Hill, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with David Heyman. My huge thanks to David for taking the time to talk to us. Paddington 2 is out now and is a truly wonderful experience for adults and children alike. Dario Marianelli's score, meanwhile, is available via Decca Records. Head to edithbowman.com to subscribe to the podcast, catch up on all of our previous episodes and link to Spotify playlists listing the music we feature in the order it appears. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do keep spreading the word amongst your friends. Next up, we have the fabulous Killian Murphy talking all things Peaky Blinders and much more. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.